God was desiring to raise up for himself, as we can see in 1 Samuel, a much-needed godly prophet at this time in the history of Israel. Times were very dark, we know, in the culture, morally, and to make things worse, the religious system itself and the spiritual condition of the nation at this time was also extremely corrupt and we'll see that more specifically as we go into chapter 2 this evening and it seems that God oftentimes has very unique and unusual ways that he brings about what he may need or what he intends to do and a lot of times that doesn't happen according to our expectations or the way we want things to come about it certainly never i know works in the time frame that i would prefer it to and that's kind of the same thing that happens here the nation was desperately in need of a godly holy spirit-filled prophet of god to speak on his behalf to help bring revival and a turning of the hearts of the people in the nation and god would do this by raising up a man named samuel and the way he went about it we're told is that he worked uniquely and honestly in a way that was somewhat through difficulty in a particular family in israel at that time there was a man named elkanah his wife, Hannah, who ultimately becomes the mother of Samuel, the Bible tells us that Hannah had no children. And it specifically tells us in chapter 1 the reason why was that God himself, it tells us there in verse 6, had closed her womb. God had sovereignly not allowed her to be able to conceive and to bear children she was struggling with what we would call infertility and we know that the struggle was on her end because Elkanah had another wife Panina who had had multiple children through him at this time and to make matters worse it told us that Panina this rival if you would of Hannah continued to mock her and provoke her and make her miserable as she was struggling with her own infertility and again in that culture it was the desire it was the longing the ambition of every jewish woman as they esteemed children as one of the most important things that could happen in a person's life as she longed to have children but was unable year after year year after year and then on top of that was continually provoked and antagonized by her rival the fact that she did not have children feeling like something was wrong no doubt she prayed and cried out to the lord continuously in fact if you look in chapter 1 verse 10 and 11 it tells us that hannah as the result of her inability to conceive and her barrenness of her womb it says she was in bitterness of soul and ultimately prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Now that's how you can tell that you're desperate in prayer. She's weeping in anguish, praying to the Lord. It tells us in chapter 1 as well that she poured out her soul to the Lord. And this became really the crisis moment in verse 11 as she was humbled and broken and in a desperation before God to see God move, knowing that the only way things were going to change was if there was an intervention of the power in the hand of God. And it says she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, verse 11, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So she comes to a place where her prayer probably changed somewhat because up to this point, maybe for years and years, she was praying for a child, but no doubt she was praying for a child for herself. Or she was praying for a child for her husband to be able to give him an heir. But at this point, she comes to a place where she says, God, I'm desperately asking you to bring forth life and God I don't want it for my sake I don't want it for my husband's sake God if you will do this she says I will render it all over to you it's for your purposes that I'm asking and she says I will take this child and raise him and more than that God give him over to you fully I will render him to you fully dedicated to you for your service and purposes if you will grant me conception and a child in my womb. And at this point, as we said last time, now her prayer comes into perfect alignment with the will of God. 
because this is exactly what God wanted. God didn't want just another child. God wanted a prophet of God. God wanted someone who could be fully dedicated, fully committed, sold out to the purposes and the work and service of the Lord who he could work through in a unique way. And now he's found the heart of a mother who's praying, saying, God, give me a child, not just for the sake of having a child, but she's saying, God, give me a child that I can render over to you for the service of God, to be fully dedicated in his life for your purposes and your plans. And God says, that's exactly what I've been waiting for. Now your prayer is coming to alignment with what my desire is, and that's the kind of prayer that I'm longing to answer. And it tells us in chapter 1 in verse 20, it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah then conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, which means heard of God or asked of God. And she named him Samuel, she said, because I have asked him from the Lord. Now let's read through the remainder of chapter 1, though we looked at it last time to set the setting as we go into chapter 2. It says, now the man Elkanah, her husband... And all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So this was the annual procession up to the house of God with the family to worship at the time of the yearly sacrifices that would take place. But Hannah, the mother of Samuel, says did not go up. This was a unique occasion. But she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned. Again, this would be about a three to five year process. And it wasn't just the nursing or the breastfeeding of the child alone that was a reference to the weaning of that. It also was a process of bonding and bonding and nurturing the child in that culture that was very important between the child and the mother. So this indicates to us about a time span of about at least three years she waits because she knows that this child is going to be dedicated to God and she wants to invest in him and experience everything she can with him. And here's the reason why. Look at it. Verse 22. Not until the child is weaned, then I'll take him up that he may appear before the Lord there at the house of God and remain there forever. She was going to take her little three-year-old child. Imagine that. And bring him down to the house of the Lord and turn her toddler over to the high priest and to the house of God and basically leave him there to be raised and trained and prepared in the ways of God that he might fully serve the Lord with all of his life. And, and imagine how difficult that must have been. Imagine being a mom and having prayed and longed for a child for so long and you finally get him. And then after just a few years, as you, after you even enjoyed him for three years, bonded with him so closely to take your little three-year-old, four-year-old, maybe five-year-old, and to just give him away and to turn him over to the work of the Lord and to leave him there that he might fulfill his God-ordained purpose. Well, this would have been an incredibly difficult thing to do. Well, verse 24, let's look at it. It says, when she had weaned him, she then took him up with her with three bulls and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. And they, they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. That was the high priest at that time. And she said to the high priest, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am that woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. So she now this day finally comes to this place where she honors her vow. She gives her child over to the Lord. She's going to leave him there with Eli the priest in the house of God. And they're going to go back home. Now, you have to put yourself from a parental perspective and all the more from a mama perspective into the shoes of this. I mean, you imagine this must have been an extremely emotional day. I mean, this had to be probably one of the hardest days of her life. As I said, uh, people have separation anxiety leaving their baby in our nursery for an hour for a Bible study, right? She's bringing her child up to the house of the Lord at three years old and she's going to leave him there to be finished raised 
by someone that she doesn't even know, by the high priest among the religious uh, workers of that day, and just let him be trained and equipped and have his life be fully dedicated to the work of God. And she's going to go back home, this little boy who she's prayed for for so long, and she now sacrificially just gives him over. God, he belongs to you. He doesn't belong to me. He belongs to you. He's for your purposes. That's a, a great hard attitude. But certainly, this must have been so hard. I mean, probably a, an incredibly emotional day. You would think at this point, what she would want to do after she worshiped was just go away and have a good cry somewhere and just be discouraged, maybe you're depressed, or I mean, like just trying to cope with how hard this was honoring her vow. But yet the Bible tells us that God honors when someone makes a vow and, and keeps their oath even when it hurts, it says in the Psalms. And this is a perfect picture of someone keeping their oath even when it hurts. Lord, I dedicated him to you. I'm going to follow through with this. And she lets him go, gives him over to the Lord. But notice, instead of weeping and crying, it says, verse 2, instead that Hannah prays. And that's a great thing to do when you're going through a hard time or a time where you have to make a great sacrifice. You know what? That's what you do. You pray your way through it. It says she worshiped the end of chapter one and then she prayed the beginning of chapter two. And listen, let me just say, if you have to go through a really hard time or maybe make a decision or have to make some sacrifice and it's really hard. Or maybe it's just really hard to obey God in some way if you're doing something out of obedience to the Lord. That's the way that you do it. You worship your way through it and you pray your way through it. And even if it's with tears coming down your face, that's what you do. You worship and pray your way through it. And she finds a way to just, look what the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2, to just rejoice in the Lord. She says, as she prays, my heart rejoices in the Lord. I don't think she could rejoice in giving over her little son. That must have been very, very difficult. But she found the ability to rejoice, to celebrate, to find joy in something. And what was it? She says, my heart can always rejoice in the Lord. And isn't that so true? We may not always be able to rejoice in our circumstances or what life forces us to have to do or even at times our steps and acts of obedience to God that sometimes require maybe a measure of sacrifice or self-denial to do the right thing and to obey and honor God. Sometimes it's hard to obey the Lord, but how wonderful that in those moments of life, even when things are hard or difficult, or we may even be grieving, that we can always still rejoice in the Lord. We see this throughout the scripture. I love the example in the New Testament where Paul and Silas, it says, are in a prison cell. And they're thrown into prison. They've been beaten and thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And instead of being bummed out and discouraged, it says they're singing hymns and praising the Lord there in the prison cell. And everybody around them must have been just, I mean, what is up? You guys are weird. What are you doing? And they're having a worship service in their prison cell. They're, yeah, we're in prison, but we can still have a church service right here as well. And they just start worshiping the Lord. Paul writing to the Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. And I think Paul says it twice because the idea is sometimes it's almost as if we read something and Paul says, look, I know you're going to gloss over this. No, I'm telling you, rejoice in the Lord. Maybe you have nothing else to rejoice in, but rejoice in the Lord. And she says on this day, my heart rejoices in the Lord and my horn, and this isn't that she was a unicorn or a strange person. The horn in the Bible is a, I know that's a poor joke, but anyway. The horn in the Bible is always symbolic of one's strength. Whenever you read the horn in scripture, God used that metaphorically like an animal's horn. It was a, an indication of strength. She's saying my strength, my power is exalted in the Lord, God had strengthened her body that basically was weak and incapable to conceive. God had given her strength supernaturally to conceive from the Lord. And so therefore, she says, I can smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The idea is I rejoice in the victory and your response to help me when I called upon you, Lord to ask you to work in this way. And because of what God had done in strengthening her and enabling her to experience the answer to her prayer and cry to the Lord, she says, now I can smile at my enemies. 
Now, again, was there a thought in her mind there of Penina, who was kind of always perpetually harassing her and giving her a hard time for not having children? Uh, we don't know, but I don't think it's even a reference to a smile in sarcasm as much as it is that when the Lord works in your life, your heart is filled with love and joy, and, and, and you don't have to be angry with your enemies. You can smile at your enemies, and the Bible calls us even to love our enemies. Jesus does. Which is, and so she says, God has worked in my life, so therefore I don't have to hold a grudge anymore. I don't have to have a chip on my shoulder. Yes, people did. And the Bible tells us in chapter 1 that Penina was so cruel to her, it literally says that she did those things to actually try and make her miserable. And now she says, this person who made me miserable, I can smile at them. <laughs> I don't have to be miserable myself and angry the rest of my life. She says, now I can smile at my enemies because I rejoice in the Lord and he's worked and come to my rescue and to help me. She then says, verse 2, going on in her praise, no one is holy like the Lord for there is none beside you nor is there any rock like our God. So she just continues to celebrate the nature of God and who he is and what he's like, that he's a rock. The idea is that he's stable. He's a foundation. He's something that we can build our lives upon. And I love how she makes reference there using double speech. No one is holy like the Lord. And then she says directly to God, for there is none beside you. And what you have here is Hannah basically indicating that she is amazed by God and his ways and really how he has worked. And she's saying, you know what, Lord? There is nobody like you. What? She's, there is no one that is like the Lord. I mean, just nobody. There's no comparison. And, and I'll tell you something. When the Lord works in our lives, it's a wonderful thing sometimes to come to the place where we grasp that lesson. And sometimes we need to learn that lesson that there is just, there's nobody like the Lord. There is no person like the Lord. Nobody can be as faithful as him. Nobody can be a stable rock and strong. No one is that person who will be, be able to never leave us or forsake us because human beings, they fail us. They fall short. They don't have the capacity or their potential. No one is like the Lord. And to be able to have that understanding, to come to a place where you can have that confidence and even the ability to celebrate that where you can say, wow, Lord, there is nobody like you. You're awesome. There's no one like the Lord, she says. No rock like our God. Therefore, verse 3, she says, talk no more so very proudly and let no arrogance come from your mouth. Now there she's probably directing her words toward humanity, of course, not towards God. She then says, going on, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. The idea is that he knows all things. There's nothing he's not aware of, and therefore by him actions are weighed. So her indication there in verse 3 is that pride is oftentimes something that has no place, but yet tragically... Though God should cause everyone because of who he is and how awesome he is to be utterly humbled, pride is often something that is still manifested in humanity. And she says pride has no place in the life of any human being. She says talk no more proudly and let no arrogance come from your mouth. Now isn't it interesting as she references pride and arrogance, she indicates where the overflow of that is demonstrated often. Talk no more proudly and let no arrogance come from your mouth. Now, the Bible tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a lot of times, truth be told, pride is often revealed in one's speech, in the ways that we speak, in the ways maybe that we speak toward other people or the way that we speak about ourselves. A lot of times arrogance and pride is manifested in our words and what we're saying, maybe because of the way that we're speaking towards someone or maybe because we're always you know, uh, speaking our own praises or looking for ways to speak things highly about ourselves. And, and so she says, this is often where the origin of pride comes from. However, she says, we need to remember in humility that the Lord is the God of all knowledge and by him actions are weighed. And again, God that speaks of his nature there, God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's the God of all knowledge. And because he knows everything, 
By him, it says, our actions, what we do, are weighed. That is like weighed in the balances. And what is trying to be reminded to us here is that God sees the motivations behind our actions. God knows the reasons why I do what I do. He doesn't just, see, you see what I do, but God sees why I did it. And God weighs our actions. And the reality is this. We can all conform and a lot of times just go through the right actions and the right motions. We know what the right motions are. And the longer we become a Christian, the more this becomes a challenge for us. Because we understand what are the right terms for the God speak. We kind of know when to push this button and that button and what a Christian should do and what a Christian shouldn't do. And, and so we can kind of bring our actions into conformity but the bible says but god is a god of all knowledge and he weighs even the actions themselves and god cares about more than just me doing the right thing god cares about am i doing it for the right reason is my heart right is my intention right god weighs our motives those things matter to god and therefore that should be the thing that keeps us humble to realize that god's not just looking at how we behave he's also looking at what's going on in our hearts and that should cause us to be humble before the Lord. As the psalmist says, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Verse four, she then says, the bows of the mighty men are broken and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Now notice the poetic language here. She's describing reversal of conditions. Those who were strong and mighty are broken those who are stumbling and are weak are empowered with strength it keeps speaking of a reversal of one's situation or condition those who were full verse 5 have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have now ceased to hunger even the barren that's what she was has borne seven and she who has many children has now become feeble the lord kills and makes alive he brings down to the grave and brings up. So again, God is the author of life and God is also the one who brings life to an end and determines and controls all of those things in his sovereignty. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. So again, God humbles a person. He can bring a person low and he also can lift a person up. Promotion comes from the Lord. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. So what Hannah's doing is she continues to just pray this prayer and kind of praise the Lord in her worship here is she pictures, as I said, just complete reversals of conditions. She's talking about how God can make the weak strong and make the strong become weak he can make the one who was barren begin to produce children and the one who is producing many children to struggle and no longer be able to produce children he can take the person who's low and lift them up and the person who's high and bring them down low and the indication she's trying to put forth here is how god can change circumstances any circumstance God can reverse a circumstance. God can change our circumstances in life at any moment. Any moment. And that's important for us. That does two things. First of all, that should keep us humble before the Lord. To realize that nothing really ultimately is in our control. It's in God's control. And the Bible says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And at any moment... What we think is so concrete and we're so sure of and we have such control of and we may even have a tight white-fingered grip on it and think there is no way this is secure, this is certain, it's been this way forever and I worked hard for, and, and we can be so... But at any moment, God can change circumstances. At any moment, He can make things go completely different, take anything away and in the same way, it should keep us humble before the Lord. It also should give us a sense of hope. Not just be humble, but also to be hopeful. To realize that God can change your circumstance at any moment. If he wants to at any moment. Oh, I've been low so long. I've been low so long. Well, you know what? In one moment, if God wants to, he can lift you up. 
Oh, I've been poor for so long. You're going to be excited about this. At any moment, God can make you rich. And you don't even have to play the lotto or something for it. I don't know. You just, at any moment, God can make you from, be from poor to rich. At any moment, God can give you a raise. At any moment, God can give you a promotion. At any moment, in any way, God can completely change circumstances. And that should make us hopeful. That should make us optimistic and encouraged to realize that nothing is ever completely hopeless because the Bible tells us there's nothing too hard for the Lord and that with God, all things are possible. So we should be humble realizing and have a light grip and realize, God, you're sovereign, you're in control and you can take anything away or change everything in a moment. And by the same way, Lord, I can be confident and encouraged and hopeful because what I don't like, Lord, at any moment, you can change it. You can reverse the situation and make it go completely different because God is sovereign over all that happens and in total control. This is what Hannah is celebrating as she'd experienced it in her own lives, in her own life. Verse uh, 8 goes on to say, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. So God established the earth. He controls what's happening in the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. So that speaks of how God preserves and God protects. For by strength, she says, no man shall prevail. The Bible says that you know, our flesh is so weak and so often you know, we think by the power of our own strength we're going to somehow conquer in a situation. And she realized probably more than anybody uh, she endeavored and endeavored and endeavored to try and have a child and by the strength of her own fleshly efforts, it never happened. She never prevailed. She never conceived until God got involved and by his spirit, God did something that she could not do in human strength. And she says, by strength, no man shall ever prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven, she says, he will thunder against them and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Interesting, almost seems she's seeing out to something prophetically now as she's praying this prayer. She ends by saying he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Interesting, there was no king yet. But yet she here, perhaps seeing something prophetically in the spirit of God giving strength to his king and exalt the horn or strength of his anointed. Interesting, there's the first time the Hebrew term Messiah shows up in the Bible where she uses the word anointed there. Anointing is used in other places thus far in the Old Testament, but always was a reference to like anointing oil put upon the priest. She now for the first time uses this Hebrew term Mashiach, the Messiah. And again, was she perhaps seeing something in the spirit as she's praying, looking down to the time of a king and ultimately Jesus the Messiah, the King of Kings. Well, verse 11 says, Then Elkanah, her husband, went to his house at Ramah. So the family goes back home now. But the child, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So the family goes back home. Samuel now, it says, remains there in Shiloh at the house of God. And the Bible says in verse 11, As a child, he ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. I mean, this must have been such a... Uh, an interesting thing to see. And, and as it's described there, it tells me something. One of the things I learned from verse 11 is this. Even a young child can serve the Lord. Do you notice the language is purposeful by the Holy he, Again, as I said, he's three, four, maybe five years old tops at this point. And it says that the child, not the teenager, not the young adult, not the experience, the child, it says, ministered to the Lord there in the tabernacle together with Eli the priest. I'd love to see this. Even a young child can serve the Lord in personal worship and a relationship with God. We should never discount the fact that a young child is able to minister to the Lord, to have a relationship with the Lord, to understand what it means to worship the Lord, to have a relationship with him. Uh, and as well, we should never diminish the fact that even a young child can find ways to practically serve the Lord. I don't know what Eli had young Samuel doing day by day, but he was there from the time he was three years old growing up in the house of the Lord. I mean, what was he doing? 
Hey, can you wash the utensils? Little Samuel, can you, can you go get me some oil for the lamps? And here he was. It may not have been complex things, but he was doing little, simple, practical things to serve the Lord, which is a great reminder that service to the Lord doesn't have to be this grandiose thing that we often interpret it to be. Oh, I want to serve the Lord, so I guess I better go to a Bible school and be able to one day stand behind a pulpit or do great crusades. No, a lot of service of the Lord is just being a servant. This young child was doing ministry. He was serving the Lord. And who knows what he was doing? Cleaning up and and doing things and going and getting jugs of oil and bringing them back to the priest, running little errands. But it says he was ministering to the Lord. It was service to God. It was ministry to God. And I love the way that ministry is defined here in the Bible regarding Samuel's life because it doesn't say that the child ministered for the Lord. It says he ministered to the Lord. And that is an important reminder in regards to any ministry that we seek to do spiritually as we serve Jesus. Ultimately, our ministry is not foremost for people. It is ministry to the Lord. Why do we do what we do? We should do it unto the Lord. Whether we're vacuuming a carpet or scrubbing a toilet or handing out bulletins or teaching children or leading music or teaching Bible studies or whatever, we do it as unto the Lord. People are blessed and helped and affected by it, but we minister to the Lord. Lord, I do this for you. And I give my best because I do it unto the Lord. I want the Lord to be pleased with it. Lord, are you pleased with this? Are you pleased with how I vacuumed? Nobody else is in the building, but are you pleased with how I vacuumed, Lord? I said, no, I'm not, because you actually skipped a row. <laughs> Lord, are, are you pleased with how I prepared and, 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 and taught that Bible study? Lord, are you pleased with that? We do, it as unto, and we do it as unto the Lord, A, wanting his approval, and B, when you do it as unto the Lord, then there's not as much of a struggle in our hearts to have to have, if you would, admiration or appreciation from people because we're not doing it for people when you do it for the lord it's a very freeing thing i find because you say lord i do this for you because i love you i do it out of worship the love of christ compels me and lord i do it for you and if you're pleased with it and it ministers to your heart then i did effective ministry and what an encouraging thing to be able to have that outlook and here's what we see the bible portraying how the priests would minister how this young child was ministering verse 13 notice or 12 excuse me that though he was doing this we see there were great problems in that day in the temple or tabernacle excuse me the sons of eli who seemed to be sort of young adult age at this point contextually they however the priest's sons were corrupt they were defiled the bible indicates and they did not know the lord so here's young Samuel, with a pure heart, this little boy with a pure heart, he just loves God. His mommy taught him to love the Lord. And he's, yeah, I'd do that for the Lord. And he's willing, like Mikey, you know, just they'll do any little errand for the Lord because he does it for the Lord. And now here are these older sons of Eli, the high priest, who had been raised in the house of the Lord, who were actively serving as priests in the house of the Lord. And yet the Bible says that they were corrupt in their condition and they didn't even know the Lord. Now, now imagine that. Here they are, children of the high priest. And they don't even know the Lord themselves. They don't even have a relationship with the Lord. Now, I think that's a very fitting reminder there. Though this man, Eli, the priest, was a spiritual leader and his kids were exposed to spiritual things, there was no guarantee that his children automatically had a relationship with the Lord because these two sons didn't have a relationship with the Lord. In fact, they were extremely corrupt. They were little wicked rebels doing all kinds of wicked and defiling things because they had not had their own personal encounter with the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. Imagine that. People serving in ministry that actually don't know the Lord. Nothing new under the sun. Verse 13 says, The priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot and the priest would notice, take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. And so they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So this is beginning to describe some of their corruption and what they did in their corrupt practices. 
Here they were, these were priests in the house of Allure, these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, we'll see. And what they were doing, the people would bring their sacrifices and a portion of that sacrifice was to be given to the priests as the spiritual leaders as a way, in a sense, to feed them so that they could have some compensation for their service. However, there was a prescribed part of the sacrifice that was given according to the Leviticus that was intended for the priest. They were completely disregarding that and just sending their crony down there with this uh, three-pronged fork and he would just stick it into the pot and just take out whatever they wanted for themselves and they were completely ignoring the word of God and just selfishly taking what they could from the people by taking advantage of them and using their position spiritually to exploit those who had come to worship. Verse 15 says, also before they burned the fat. And remember, that was the portion the Bible tells us in the law that was to be given unto the Lord. It was the aromatic portion of the meat. And that was to be rendered over to the Lord as sort of a sweet aroma going up to him. But before they burned the fat, the priest servant would also come and say to the man who was sacrificing the worshiper, give meat for roasting for the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if a man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. So what the worshiper is doing, interesting, the worshiper is correcting the spiritual. And he's saying, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to give God the first part? Aren't we supposed to give God the fat? Isn't God supposed to get the best part? And listen, if we just give God the best and his part first, then you can have whatever you want. He's kind of just trying to, if nothing else, keep some sense of integrity to the sacrifice that's given. And he says, shouldn't we give God his part first? But look how they answered roughly verse 16. They answered him saying, no, but you must give it now. And if not, then I will take it by force. They're like thugs in the house of the Lord here. Here are the people bringing their offerings to worship the Lord and sadly, these men are so corrupt, they don't have any relationship with the Lord. They're just abusing the people who are coming to worship and using their position of ministry for personal gain. To just take advantage of people, ripping the people of God off, satisfying and enriching themselves. And not to mention, as you can see by their tone and their language, now they're becoming incredibly demanding abusing the people saying if you don't give it to us then we're going to take it by force we're going to actually take over control and they're abusing their authority and threatening people and intimidating people and just really mistreating the people of God from their position of worship now take notice nothing new under the sun sadly there are people today in the modern church who have positions of spiritual leadership who are in roles of ministry who sadly uh, are doing the same exact thing they're looking to use their position to do nothing more than to enrich themselves to take advantage of people to abuse their authority they can become very demanding. They can hurt and abuse people, throw their weight around. And rather than caring for people and helping people, instead they're robbing people and ripping them off and abusing their authority, kind of forcing people to do things and just such a tragedy. But nothing new under the sun. It was happening in this day, even in the midst of the tabernacle worship. Verse 17, it says, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great, before the Lord for men abhorred the offering of the Lord take notice it doesn't just say God was displeased with this it says the sin of those young men doing that was very great before the Lord this greatly displeased God and God was going to be the one to deal with it and the reason why is it says as the result of what they were doing it says people the worshipers they abhorred the offering of the Lord the idea is to be disgusted with or to despise offering and worship to the Lord. It was causing the worshipers to basically say, I hate going to the tabernacle. I mean, I'm, just, I'm disgusted. I don't even want... Because every time you go up there, all you do is just get mistreated. And they're just going to take advantage of you. And, and people actually were becoming stumbled and being turned away from genuine worship of the Lord 
because of the bad experiences and mistreatment that were happening to them from those who were supposedly God's representatives. And God did not take very light to this. God was extremely angry because it had caused people to just despise the whole experience of worship, to despise any giving or offering to the Lord. It caused confusion and stumbling. And it's such a sad and a tragic thing because I said this kind of stuff happens today. It's happened perhaps to some of us in this room. It happens to people we talk to and they say, oh, well, you know, I had this experience and, they, uh, and, and this happened and, and people get stumbled and they actually begin to say, well, I've just, I, wanna, I love Jesus, but I'm done with the church because this happened and that happens. And, and this, that's such a, it happens. We have to have the maturity to realize, like 2 Corinthians 11 says, that there are genuine true servants of the Lord and there are false servants of the Lord. And we have to be able to discern the difference between that and don't let a bad experience turn you away from the Lord himself. Here were supposed servants of the Lord, but yet they were corrupt and the Lord was very displeased with what they were doing. But notice the contrast, verse 18, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child wearing a linen ephod. Notice God still had his faithful servant, this young man, his heart was still pure. And though there were those abusing and corrupt in the system, Samuel still had a pure heart. He was a servant. He was ministering, even as a young man, wearing that linen ephod as the priests would. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. So at least she got to come up and see her little boy at the time of the sacrifices. She came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, bringing him a new little robe, probably well, look how much he grew from last year. And she'd bring him up a new little robe as he was growing. And Eli would bless Elkanah, that's Samuel's father, and his wife saying, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. And then they would go down to their own home. And the Lord, look at this, visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Take notice, she started out barren. God answers her prayer. She renders this gift over to the Lord. But what a great reminder here again to show that giving can be done with a pure heart and you can't ever outgive God. <laughs> she gives her child over to the Lord and God gives her five children in return. And this is just the heart of the Lord. We can never outgive the Lord. And we never have to worry when we truly give something over the Lord and we think, oh, this is such a sacrifice. And I'm so, if I give this to the Lord, how am I ever going to? God give you fivefold in return. And the Lord just blesses her with five other children as the result of this gift of giving her son over to the work of the Lord. Verse 22 says, now Eli was very old and he heard notice even worse than what was happening before that his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So not only were they stealing from people financially, but they were taking advantage of women who were assembling around the tabernacle of the Lord by entering into sexual relations with them. And they were using their position and the connections they had with the women who would assemble the tabernacle to enter into fornication and sexual sin to abuse their position and authority again to take advantage of women. Certainly these were corrupt young men. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear you make the Lord's people transgress. And that's never a good thing to do, especially when you're supposed to help God's people to grow spiritually. Interesting. They should have been helping God's people confess sin. Instead, they're helping God's people commit sin. That's always a bad thing. They say, you make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, the idea is directly, who will intercede for him? The idea is where, what hope is there? Nevertheless, notice, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. The point there simply being this is they continued in their rebellion and basically God said, if you won't deal with them, I will. And God's going to remove them 
because they needed to be removed so God was going to severely take them out of the way because no one else was dealing with them as we'll see. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Again, you continue to notice the contrast of Samuel growing, maturing. In verse 27, then a man of God came to Eli, we don't know who, just a, an unnamed prophet, and he said to him, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house and the house of his father would have been Aaron, the high priest. And did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? So this prophet of God comes to Eli and says, listen, did God not honor you with such privilege from the, the, the priesthood of Aaron? You've descended and God's given you the privilege of the ministry, the privilege of being able to represent him. He's given to you the offerings to supply your need as you serve and work for him. Verse 29, therefore, in light of that great privilege, he says, why do you kick? The idea is to despise, treat as nothing. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and offering which I've commanded in my dwelling place, and look at this, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it from me, from those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. So this prophet of God comes with a rebuke now to Eli. And notice his rebuke to Eli very simply is this. Not only had he, in a sense, disregarded the incredible privilege of ministry that God had entrusted to him and to his family from the descendancy of Aaron, the high priest, but worse, he had permitted and allowed his sons to continue in this corruption and this sin, this evil activity and he did nothing to stop them. Now listen, you say, well, wait a minute. He did rebuke them. We read that back in verse 23 and 24. Yes, he rebuked them. Yes, he identified their evil, but he never took any action. He never did anything about it. He spoke to them about what they did wrong, but he never exercised any action to discipline his sons to put an end to their wrongdoing. And this is what God was displeased with. He says there, the problem, verse 29, is God says to him, you honor your sons more than you honor me. What God is saying is, is you hold a higher level of esteem for your own children than you do for me as God. And boy, this is something that all of us have to be very careful of, especially as parents, because we can sort of idolize our children sometimes. And to keep them happy or to honor their preferences or make them not be... We can sometimes honor our children above honoring the Lord. And this was the mistake of, of Samuel, first of all, as a father, as a parent, is that he was honoring his children and more concerned about honoring his children than he was honoring the Lord. He should have said, listen, I don't care what you think of me as your father. I will honor God first and you are not going to do this anymore. And he should have taken action and disciplined his sons instead of allowing them to continue in their evil. And sometimes as parents, we have to be willing, having a greater honor and love for the Lord, to say, though I love my children, I love God supremely. And my first calling is to honor God. And if that means that I need to take action to discipline my children, to correct them, not just talk to them and never act upon it, but to do what I need to do as a father with the authority that God's given to me as a parent to say this is wrong and it dishonors God and it will not be permitted. It will not be allowed. It will stop. It will not happen under my authority. That's our responsibility. And it displeases the Lord if we honor our children at times more than we honor him. This was the mistake of Eli as a parent. And it was the mistake of Eli as well as a spiritual leader because he was the high priest. These men were serving under his authority and his role as a spiritual leader should have been to not just address what was wrong, 
but to act upon it. He should have said, turn in your little ephods, you're done today. You're fired. Because my calling is to protect the flock of God and you are harming the flock of God and you're not doing that under my watch. That should have been his fortitude and strength as a spiritual leader. As the primary leader, he should have addressed this and took action and removed his sons. Instead, he enabled them. He allowed them to keep committing their evil rather than taking action and having the strength. And boy, we have to be careful of this very thing. God was very displeased because Eli had done this as a father and as a spiritual leader. Verse 31, the conclusion of the warning and the sort of the, 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 the consequence of what was happening. Behold, he says, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, a reference to the Philistines, as we shall see, despite all the good which God has done for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Their lineage would now be cut off because of this failure. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. They would die young. The idea is the loss of opportunity now this shall be a sign to you here's the prophecy that will come upon your two sons Hophni and Phinehas in one day they shall die both of them and then I will raise up for myself notice a faithful priest God says who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house of your family shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and morsel of bread, saying, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So the judgment prophetically is pronounced now that God was going to deal with his sons. Why? Because he wouldn't. And God says, if you won't do it, I'll do it. And see, God's sovereign. And if we don't do what's right, God will deal with it himself. God's not going to let people get by with wrongdoing. God will ultimately bring his discipline even if we fail to. And the beautiful thing here is God is never lost for opportunity because in verse 35, God says, and then once I remove them, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who would do according to what's in my heart and in my mind. God says, I'm going to raise up someone who understands my heart in shepherding people that understands what's on my mind in caring for and leading people spiritually. Now, possibly, is that a reference to Samuel? Very likely. Some wonder about, because the fact that the term there is used a priest and say, well, Samuel is really more of a prophet than a priest. I, I don't know if that's super critical. I think certainly perhaps in the initial sense, it is a reference to how God was raising up Samuel as he was eradicating, removing the corruption because Samuel was going to be the man of the hour. It could be a reference to Zadok. First Kings chapter two gives some indication of that. But certainly, let me tell you this, ultimately, that's a beautiful description of Jesus our great high priest, the faithful high priest who understands the heart and the mind of Father God who will have a sure eternal house forever. And he's the greatest high priest. And the good thing is with that spiritual leader and high priest, he never changes. He stays the same. He remains forever and can help us in our lives. Let's stand. Let's pray together.